This evening I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Elder Monteith came up to me and said, Well, are you ready? And he, I said, For what? And he goes, Deuteronomy gets pretty, gets pretty uh, colorful. I said, Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I, don't, I want you to know that despite some of the color that is here, I don't, parents, want to make your job any harder after worship. And so I'm going to endeavor to be delicate, but I'm not going to apologize for the words of Scripture, nor should we ever, um, ever apologize to the world for the things that are here. There may be at times interpretive challenges, but as it relates to the laws that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and later in chapter 23, you need to understand that these things have been given by God to his people for their good, and these laws come to us where we are, exactly where we are. Now, parents, I know sometimes you avoid hard conversations with your children because you just don't really want to know what's going on. Because if you pick up their cell phone and open Safari, you may see things that shock you. There is nothing that can be hidden from God. There should be nothing that shocks us. There are times in which we are to respond to sinfulness with a healthy level of disgust. But we must be those who go out into the world and we see what the world is doing. Help them find a way out of what they're doing. And to, within the church, establish a means of living where we can be a place of moral, covenantal, corporate safety. At the time of John Calvin and Geneva, in the 16th and early 17th century, it was said of Geneva that it was the safest place in all of Europe for women. And the reason is they took these laws very seriously. And they sought to apply the, the, the general equity of these things to life within that city. Because from the beginning of time, when anyone gets power and they have sinful hearts, what do they do with it? They use it to corrupt and oppress the weak. God is interested in the protection and the purity of the weak. And that is what we will see this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity, then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. 
But if the thing is true that the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in an open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver and he shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. As far the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask even now that you might give us uh, a kind of patience and humility under the preaching of your word. For we do find in here hard things, almost scandalous things, things that might be edited for television. And yet here they are for us, a very clear portrait of the kind of sins that men commit under the fall. We ask, O Lord, not only for wisdom as to how we are to look at these things and think of them, but apply them and in our own lives flee from all immorality. For we see that it brings upon us great destruction. And so, Lord, purify our hearts and our hands that we might walk in holiness before you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, even as I read it this week, I thought, oh, man. Whew. A little heat came into my ears. I'm sitting there in my own study, and I'm getting embarrassed. And now I read it out loud, and it's happening all over again. I'm not embarrassed because of the nature of how God gives his law, but because these are hard topics. But it's happening all around us every day. And when I sat down recently uh, with a gentleman who's a member of our congregation who's a police officer in Charlotte... Uh, he began to tell me some of the things that he experiences, and it makes this look like child's play, even. There is great wickedness in the world. And we must, as a church, not only not hide from it, but we must be prepared to enforce punitive measures, not only as a church, but if, and I would set this before you again, if you were king for the day, and a case like this was brought before you, what would you do? Or would you say, oh, I don't know what to do? No, wisdom. Wisdom takes the scriptures and applies them to all of life. What other rule would you follow? I ask that question with good intention. 
If you were king of the day, or perhaps somehow by some sheer viral marketing campaign, you actually got voted into office. And they came to you and said, what shall we do in this particular circumstance? What would you say? Does the law of God not have some effect on all of life? Even that which goes beyond our individual selves and our lives together as a church. Well, yes, there are clear applications here. And I think with Deuteronomy chapter 22, part of our sort of response to the scriptures is getting over the the sort of audacious nature, just the blunt nature of what's happening. But how we are to think about our own holiness, our own purity as a people of God. And I want to do that under two headings. The first is just violations of the seventh commandment. That's what these are. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Violations of the seventh commandment. And then secondly, purging the evil from our midst. Purging the evil from our midst. Now let me look at this, sir. Let's look at this first point as it relates to violations of the seventh commandment. As it relates to the whole of human history... There are really three areas where we fall down hardest and feel the effects of the fall the most. And that comes when we pursue worldly or fleshly avenues of power, wealth, and pleasure. And Satan knows exactly where to come at us. Our temptation, those allurements that fall into the category of worldly power, worldly wealth, and worldly pleasure... Right now, what you are seeing throughout this world is a sort of (laughs) grasp for power that you probably have not seen in your part or your neck of the political woods heretofore. And it is this grasp of power, and many of us go, "Um, surely that's not what they're doing. And I'm telling you, it's the oldest sin in the book. From the beginning... The temptation and allurement of Satan was, if you eat, then you do not have to be dependent upon God for the satisfaction of worldly power, wealth, and pleasure. You can have it for yourself. And from that moment, the inclination of the human heart is to attain for ourselves those things that God has rightly promised to us, but in his time and in his own way. God wants us to seek power and to have power. In fact, the creation mandate has at the very center of it the promise of power. Remember what it is? Take dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. That covers the gambit of power, wealth, and pleasure. But we are to pursue them God's way. And because of the fall, what we have done is we have corrupted our pursuit of them. We take dominion for the sake of ourselves. We take dominion in relationship, being fruitful and multiplying, for ourselves. And so what we find is, in the generations of men, a corruptible pursuit, a corrupted pursuit of worldly power, pleasure, and wealth. Babel is an example of that. And we see it all around us. Babylon, Egypt, all the great empires of men are reflections of and manifestations of human endeavor to attain for themselves power, wealth, and pleasure. And so, 
we need to understand that our pursuit of a righteous mission has been corrupted by the fall. And so, within our various, even covenantal communities, we are filled with those who are tempted by these things. You are not above failure in these things. And temptation will come. It isn't just the outsiders who've been brought into Israel. Parents, remember, you do this perhaps. Well, it can't be my kid. Clearly, they heard that bad word from another kid. And that's the kid that corrupted my kid. No, your kid is as easily corruptible as that kid. And your kid's just waiting to hear that word. I remember the first time I used a cuss word. It was in the sanctuary of the church. I had no idea what the word meant. And then I learned. <laughs> I learned a very valuable lesson. Um, don't cuss out loud in church. And I had no idea. And I learned that morning there are some words, though in and of themselves they are not wicked, by the sound of them, the intent and the motivation of the human heart is at times greatly wicked. And so what Moses walks us through are a variety of if statements. If this happens, then you are to handle it this way. The first one gets us started off quite bluntly. If a man gets married and all of a sudden he has, well, cold feet after the fact, he's not simply allowed to divorce his wife just by making up lies about her. Now, the lie here is a bad one. Basically, what he is saying is, um, she's not fit to be my wife. I don't want her anymore. And so it's possible that he may regret the decision. And so he comes, and they handle it as a family at first, and there is a kind of investigation as to whether or not he has reason to be discouraged about his wife, whether she came into the relationship pure. And if there is evidence of her purity, then guess what? He has to be, well, he's disciplined. He pays a fine, and he cannot divorce her. However, if there is evidence that she is not a virgin, then she is to be put to death. Now, all of these crimes that are commitments or commitments against or violations rather of the seventh commandment are punishable by death. Let's just get that out of the way. Now, we'll understand the New Testament correlative, which I spoke about last week, as it relates to the death penalty and sexual sin. But we're going to keep going because I just want to get through this. And so we see how God handles cruelty and abuse in this way. The man has to make amends. And he is called to devote himself to her. And it doesn't matter how she, he feels about it. Because what he has done is if he has lied about her, he has harmed her and her reputation. That's what we see in verses 13 through 19. Now, the reason is repeated over and over again. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. There is a punitive aspect of our commitment to punishing the law. Sin must be punished, and it must be punished in such a way that it is dealt with in the individual and in the body. There's another instance. If, verse 22, 
Two people who are married are cheating on their spouses and they are caught, well, they're both put to death. That means all of Hollywood would be wiped off the map. Think about it that way. <laughs> all of them. Now what's ironic is this. The very people that criticize the barbaric nature of Scripture are the very people who are committing the sins that Scripture condemns. And these are also the same people who are taking to social media like crazy right now, condemning the state of Texas for passing what is one of the most pro-life measures in the history of this country since Roe v. Wade, though, frankly, it's still not sufficient. But what they're saying is, it's cruel. Cruel to who? So I don't want you to think for one moment that one of the things that you have to do in this world that is so inverted by their, their sin is to defend God's law. You need to be able to explain it, but you don't need to feel like you have to defend it or apologize for it. So let's now look at the next one. Verse 23, then 24 is a little bit of a strange one, but basically it's this. If there is someone who is engaged, now Old Testament, old school, ancient betrothal is basically as good as marriage. It was a, it was a commitment of both families to come together in their, with their son and their daughter, and it was essentially like a, it was almost like a marital state. A covenant had already been arranged. They just had not had the ceremony yet. And if there was an occasion where a man essentially forces himself upon a woman, but she doesn't say no, and she has opportunity to say no, because if she cried out, there would be people that stopped him, then both of them are guilty of adultery. And they shall both be stoned. Now, verse 25. Again, we see this refrain, so you shall purge, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Verse 25. This is a different kind of circumstance. What if a woman is betrothed, but a man forces himself upon her, and there is no way for her to get out of it? She is alone. This is essentially just flat out, very clear, open and shut case of rape. What shall be done to him? What shall be done? You are to put him to death. This is one of those where you don't actually have to convince anybody of it. You're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Even people who don't believe in capital punishment or don't believe that capital punishment is biblical believe that this is a wretched, wretched crime, and it is. But then there's another situation. A situation in which there was a woman who is not betrothed and a man takes her, but not in a way that is described as earlier. It is not to the same extent with the same amount of violence. He seizes her. There is an expression of power, which was quite normal in the day. But the man who takes this woman who essentially coerces her to some extent, is then to marry her instead of be put to death. This is not a situation of attacking. This is a situation of, still, 
force, but not to the same extent that we find in verses 25 through 27. The reason that it's distinguished here is because it's very clear that the punishments are not the same. What shall happen is that because he has violated her, he has taken her purity, her virginity, he must then commit himself to her. So in, all, in sort of modern parlance, what you will often find is a man and a woman get together, they're not married, and all of a sudden you hear, you know what I'm talking about? The shotgun wedding. That's what this is. And any pastor worth his salt when he's counseling a couple who have been impure prior to marriage and all of a sudden there is reason to get married, he says, you need to get married. You need to do the right thing. Because honestly, what they have done already in their bodies is made covenant with one another. They're already married. And then there's this really bizarre one here at the end. Verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. This is what Ham does in the book of Genesis. It's absolutely perverse. I am fully convinced that what Ham does in Genesis after Noah and his family come off the ark, he's grown his vineyard, the grapes have come and he's made his wine and Noah is drunk off his gourd, is that Ham goes and he endeavors to have a child with his own mother. He is subverting the rightful order of covenant succession. And you go, and everybody's looking around like, whoa. Yes, ugh. it is disgusting. And you ought to be ashamed, and the heat ought to come into your ears. But here's the thing. God does not shy away from revealing the odious nature of our sins. And here is what I want us to remember. God, in essence, began again with Noah and his family. And almost as soon as they got off the ark, what happened? That kind of sin was manifested in the family. Cain killed his brother Abel, and Ham slept with his own mother. And this is the covenant family. We are not immune to the sins of this world. And so when we see these sins... We can't just overlook them. They must be dealt with. These sins are serious because they are violations, first, of the seventh commandment. At times, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, we see that in verses 25 through 27, and they are violations of the fifth commandment. Like verse 30, when a son steals or endeavors to steal away from his father his own wife. Again, it feels a little bit like Hollywood. There's a problem, and that problem is this. We now live among a people who not only practice these things, but they actually say these things are good and morally superior to the things that we in the church express as being good. What is wrong? Well, what is wrong is this. There is an inherent natural desire to satisfy our corrupted flesh. 
And the way in which many people justify that it is okay is often expressed in this term, personhood theory. Now, I want you to know that term because it is alive and well within sort of secular parlance. Personhood theory essentially posits this. It is not that you have a body and a soul, and both of those are made in the image of God, that they are connected. And though they are distinct from one another, they cannot be separated. God made your body. God made your soul. And both of those things are to be incorporated into a pursuit of righteousness. What you do with your body is important, and what you do with your soul is important. Well, this is what the secular sort of world around us says today. And this is what personhood theory is. And I want to try to explain it as clearly as I can. A person has two aspects to his nature. One is his person. The other is what makes sort of his flesh. One of the things you can... You can use your body for whatever you wish, but it isn't exactly what makes you you. Now, here is the way they apply it to babies. That when you look at a fetus in the womb, that fetus may be a human, but it's not a person yet. Now, you may say, what? And I'm saying to you, yeah. You need to understand what the world is saying and thinking and how they justify all of this misbehavior. And they moralize and they relativize great harm and violence by saying that there is something, there is some part of you that you can engage in with your body that cannot touch that part of you that makes you who you really are. And there is a schism between these two parts of you. But here's the problem. It's totally untrue. And the consequences of our hedonistic lifestyle in the West in particular, it's everywhere, but in the West, in the boldness of it all, is absolute confusion and misery and chaos. And all of these popular efforts to stop abuse, to stop the violence, are half-hearted attempts because at the center of them is not a call to holiness and divine perspective about who we are, but just grasping for more power. More and more power. Take the Me Too movement. Are you all familiar with the Me Too movement? I'm not talking politics, okay? And if somebody sees this sermon on Facebook or YouTube, I'm not talking about politics. <laughs> I'm talking about moral issues that we face every day. The Me Too movement was a movement that grew out of a response to seeing powerful men in politics and in the entertainment world who were abusing their power. Now, let's put things in perspective. The things that were being done in Hollywood and in Washington pale in comparison to what the people in Babylon and Persia were doing. They are wicked nonetheless, but they are softballs compared to that. It's wicked, and what they're attempting to do is match power with power by overthrowing these certain people who are using their power for evil. Now, as a church, as a people of God, we can get behind the overthrow of abuse and violence, but we cannot do it in a way that takes some stories and we say, 
Those stories are legitimate. Those stories are not. Based upon what those stories do to another person. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to be discreet here a little bit. If you're part of a certain group of people and you're doing abuse, there's going to be a blind eye turned to your behavior. If you're part of another group of people, they're going to get all up in your business. God does not show partiality to any. And that should be for us a warning. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care if you're chair of the Rotary Club or the president or a king or a pauper. If you violate his law, you are worthy of condemnation. If you are 17 or if you're 27 or 77, it doesn't matter. God does not show respect to persons based upon whatever status they may have. He cares only about the nature of his law. And he wants you to understand as a people that we are all breakers of his law. And therefore, we are all worthy of condemnation. And so when we take these things and we bring them into the New Testament, New Covenant church, it is not as though God is less interested in punishment or that the church is somehow now less interested in the heinousness of sin because we no longer, as a group of people who are separated, the, the body politic of the state and the body politic of the church are no longer wed together as they were in Israel, the church still cares about holiness. And so, secondly, punishment and purging. As we look at the execution edicts in Deuteronomy and we bring them into the New Testament church, there is still a place for harsh punishment for crimes that are violated. Violent crimes need to be punished. But within the church, what Christ has given to the, to the New Testament church is the ability to take these laws and to judge whether or not a person needs to be a member of the visible church. And there are certain sins that exclude you from membership in the visible church. And they are here. If you have committed these things and you are unrepentant in your sins, you are to be cast out of the church. It's that simple. And it is only according to God's law. Now, let's say one of you is doing one of these things with another person in this church. What should happen? The session of the church must come to those people and say, what is happening? There's an investigation. There is a trial. There is a pronouncement of innocent or guilty, and then there is a charge given. That is a level of censure, rather not a charge. Charge comes earlier. A level of censorship. And that level of censure is governed by the Scripture, not simply what we think is right. We must be fair in accordance with the word of God. And we must understand, as it relates to violations of the seventh commandment, that they are serious. And this is why they are serious. They get to the heart of God's covenantal love for us. Marriage, as you know, and you've heard it said, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, marriage is a picture of whom? Christ and the church. 
A problem happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in many evangelical churches in America, and that was this. They stopped, they stopped caring about couples divorcing in the church. They just never dealt with it. They never once dealt with it. And you know why? Parents, are there times in your home where there is a serious violation of the law and you just say, I'm too tired. I'm just going to overlook this one. Within the church, here's the motivation. What will happen to our membership? What will happen to our reputation? What will happen? That guy, he's on the board of deacons. He's an officer. What will the community think about us? Guess what? The community don't care what the community thinks. They're doing those things. Our responsibility as a church is to be a city on a hill that exercises judicious, biblical oversight so that people might come into the church and feel relatively safer. One of the great gifts that the session of a church can give to her members is they may rule in scriptural terms uh, according to the sins that are committed. But not out of fear, we must stand strong. Purging ought to be a practice that is to take place in the church today. Within the body of Christ, we must be vigilant to protect one another from these kinds of sins. So why ecclesiastical discipline? Because sin deserves punishment. And if you don't believe that's true, then I want you to go home and from this point forward, never discipline your children again and see how it goes. Punishment is essential to keeping order. There must be a level of fear... A fear response in the heart of a person uh, knowing that if they do X, then the law's coming for them. Now, we know this, that fear of the law is not what either saves a person or brings them to genuine repentance. But guess what? I can't do that anyway. And it is not for those reasons alone that we punish We punish for the reasons given in Deuteronomy chapter 22. To purge the evil from our midst. There are times when the church must say, you must go so that we might remain pure. And the implicit exhortation to all of us is, don't ever be the person that the church has to say, go. Do not be the kind of person that brings violence, abuse, disruption, and disorder to the covenant people of God, but rather heed the discipline of God and find a a call to repentance. And so the first purpose is to punish real sin. It is to prompt repentance. Parents, this is what you do for your child. You punish in order to bring about what? A soft, teachable heart. I'm telling you, the application button for the Bible was back here. If if my father wanted to drive a biblical principle into my heart, he knew exactly where to push. And that's actually what happened. I would do something silly. My mom would handle it. 
to some degree. She just couldn't press the button hard enough, if that makes sense. And so my dad would come home after working for 10 hours, and he would sit me down on the bed, and he would talk to me about what law I violated. There was some kind of punishment, and then he would put his arm around me and say, how's your day? Are you doing okay? <laughs> yes, I'm fine. <laughs> I was exhausted, but I was soft. Like a, like a cut of beef that isn't really fit for human consumption, but it's all you got in the fridge, and so you get that hammer, da, da, da. There is a sense in which God is bringing about, in response to our sins, real judgment, temporary judgment, so that we may not be judged eternally. And so do not let the momentary light judgments of God in this life prevent you from fearing that eternal judgment that is to come. In fact, that's why he brings them. To punish is to bring repentance. And so here we see very serious sins. And then Paul brings this forward into the New Testament church, and this is what he says about the Corinthian church. You guys used to do this stuff. Now, what Paul does not do is seek to bring them to court, but he seeks to call them to genuine repentance, and such were some of you. What we are called to do as a new covenant church is to go out into the world where there are people who are broken and hurt by these kinds of sins and say, in Christ Jesus, there is a new life that awaits you. Find forgiveness and walk in newness of life. And the same should be said to us. If you have fallen down in these areas of purity and holiness, the call is to repent and to flee from the coming judgment. And the way that we do that as a church is we must declare what people are for. We acknowledge that we fall down where God has made us for. God has made us for pleasure, for delighting in one another. God gave to us marriage, and not just to make babies, but to delight in one another. He has given us all of these resources to go plant and sow and reap and gain wealth and to, to run for office and to have people vote and to get some power, but all of that, all of that directed to his glory. And the church is that place where we must declare what we are for. Why has God made us? And so we must be a people who endeavor to walk in holiness, to punish wickedness, and to seek to protect those who are bruised and broken by the fall. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we...